This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So Gaviria wrote this brilliant opinion piece in the New York Times and said... Please, President Duterte, don't repeat the mistakes I made. A war on drugs is a war on people. Please don't do this. He was, he was lucky, actually, Gaviria, because normally people who criticise Duterte get the son of a whore treatment. He was just called an idiot by Duterte. But that pretty much summed it up. You know, Duterte will, will, will not listen to the people who have experience. Like, Gaviria declared war on drugs, and he says it didn't work it did not work. In the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, the president, has declared war on his own people fundamentally through the guise of the drug war. There's been massacres, there's been murders, there's been extrajudicial killings. There's a whole situation we need to keep talking about. So thankfully we're joined by uh, an amazing panel that have been there on the ground. So let's get into this. This is Stop and Search on Scribus Pips Distractions Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Leap UK. Here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Where do you southern street? Thank you so much for joining us again. And as I said, these topics don't get any easier to deal with, but we have to. We have to have this discussion. And as crude as it is to say, this is fascinating to to delve into this because this is what happens when a society goes full bore on the drug war. It, It creates these dynamics that we're just about to speak about. And thankfully, the panel we've got to speak about are very well placed because they've been on the ground. We've got Jonathan Miller, who is Channel 4 News Asia's correspondent, he has been called son of a whore by President Duterte himself. And this is a quite a unique club, and we, we speak about this within, within the episode. Some journalists are actually targeted by the regime, and Jonathan Miller, he's got some bravery on his side because he's, he's, he's written a biography, Duterte Harry, which we've spoken about on a previous episode. So if you're listening on your cast app, that link will be scrolling now. Make sure you have a listen to that episode because it's, it's fascinating. We're also joined by Livy Haydock, a friend of the show. Again, Livy, you would know her films, The Deadliest Place to Deal Drugs. She's been out there in the Philippines and she's toured with the gangs. She's been on mopeds. She's been out there literally on the ground making sure that these these topics are getting covered. And we've also got Avanesh, Avanesh Farrell from Talking Drugs and Release, who is moving on now. When we filmed this episode, Avanesh was with the magnificent organisation release and the 
uh, journalism site Talking Drugs. But Avanesh, he's going on to Pastures News, so we wish him so, so well because he is one of the biggest intellects and the nicest people in drug policy you could possibly meet. Oh, I like to think of him as a friend. And thank you so much, Avanesh, to giving up your time for this episode. And we wish you well. We'll see you soon. And on that note, make sure you follow us on all the usual channels at UKLeap on Twitter, at UKLeap.org on Facebook, at UKLeap on Instagram. And of course, just check out our website, uh, UKLeap.org. Right, on those uh, rather ill time promotions, let's now talk about the monumental amount of deaths that's going on in the Philippines. So. Here we go. Livy, I'm going to come to you first off in this. Um, you, your documentary, The, the yeah. Deadliest Place to Deal with Drugs, was just mind-blowing. I watched it again yesterday. Um, and you actually have been, again, on the ground in the Philippines, so you know what it's like. What was the general... And this is going to be a very broad question, but what's the general feeling like when you was in the Philippines at that time? Because how long ago did you film it? It was about... Um, I went out the November after Duterte came to power, so he'd been in power a few months then. Um, so he was still so fairly was, new. Yeah, it was still fairly new, but I think he'd already um, killed an estimated 3,000 people at that point. Um yeah, it was it was a weird one because you go to Manila and obviously I've seen the headlines and everything and knew what was going on there. But then you go to Manila and it's the most vibrant, fun city with so many westernised things going on and it's functioning. It's like, but then as soon as it got dark, but then this changed. I was there for a month and then by the end of that month already there were killings happening in the daytime too. But it felt like in the dark, as Jonathan said, in the slums. There's a whole other thing going on. It was kind of a, a city of two sides. And what what is it generally? Because again, I'm completely westernised. I've never been outside of London, pretty much. So, what is it like being in on the ground? Is it as impoverished as what we can imagine? Um, in, if you as soon as you hit the slums, yeah, you'd think it were. I mean, walking into the slums, some of them you'd think you're going into. Um, <coughs> like sort of huge waste areas you know like dumping fields but actually it's where people were living um a huge kind of um kind of people it like warrens of uh homes and you know cables coming down really low and they're just dangerous places but vibrant with people friendly as anything but then you there's this kind of um looming fear among people and especially at night time and any anything to do with a, mo- a moped or a motorbike and two people on it, you, you, you worry, man. And and this is how the film starts off, and this is where yeah. you and Jonathan got something in common, is that you've both mm. been out on call with yeah. the press pack as the, the hits. Yeah, so, so we literally um, took a sort of just to get an idea of how bad things they become or were becoming at that point in time, we literally followed uh, the night callers, the journalists who are local there and going you know out looking for bodies basically so every time there's another killing we'd all rush to with the press pack or go to where this person had been killed um quite often it was very obvious if it was something that had been someone's life had been claimed for the drug war on drugs because like i mean there was one where um he'd been shot in the head and there was an his wallet had been emptied so we thought ah Maybe it was a, a robbery. Maybe it was a mugging gone wrong. And then you look inside his wallet and it said, um, sorry, I'm a pusher. Sorry, I've ruined my life because of drugs. Um, and there were just so many of those. We couldn't cover them all. Uh, the, you get the first killing, then three or four came in, five, six. And the average, I think, when I was there was about 10 a night. And, and you actually... That we knew of. You spoke to the families as yeah, well. Yeah, so we'd often follow the... Um, 
find out who the victim was who'd been killed um, and then f- literally follow their body being picked up um, and taken to the funeral home, which often a lot of those have contracts with the police. Um, yeah. Avanessa, <laughs> it's, it's something that I keep drawing upon is that how, how informed are we in the UK of what's going on in the Philippines? Avanesh writes for Talking Drugs, which is a, an amazing website. I, I very recommend you go to that. Um, you've covered the Philippines on a couple of occasions, haven't you, of what's going on out there. Do you think we're aware yet of how bad it's getting? I, well, I haven't been there myself, so I couldn't really speak for what the extent of the situation is right now without, without having been there like uh, Jonathan and Livy have. But I really just don't believe that people have enough understanding of what is happening or understand it within the context of sort of the global drug war and issues around global prohibition and the consequences that has. It, has it hit the, in quotation marks, mainstream press yet? Are we getting to grips with it or is it still people like you and I that are predominantly addressing it? Uh, how do you mean, sorry? Is it, is it mainly the people that aren't of the male, the son, the, the, the general, obviously not, in, not including Jonathan because you're very much out there doing, doing the job, but is it very much a case that it's still the bloggers and the independent people that are making the case in, in the UK uh, and Europe generally of what's going on? No, I mean, it, it has hit the mainstream press for sure, but I mean, I remember even seeing an article in the Daily Mail, now this is probably over a year ago, this probably was 2016, a few months after the... Um, after Duterte came into power, that was actually fairly supportive of the of the atrocities that are taking place there, because the way they frame it in terms of these are horrible, evil people who are committing atrocities and, and harming the uh, harming the people of the Philippines, and so therefore it, it's sort of justified for this to be happening to them without really giving the sufficient detail, um, as as this book does, of of who these people actually are and who, who's facing the brunt of this. So, as a journalist yourself. It, and also someone that works in the drug law reform sector because uh, Avanesh also works for Release which I very much recommend you check out but what's it like dealing in this sector thinking that you know, we've seen the worst of it that's seen the worst of the drug war and then all of a sudden this new arm starts to creep in and starts to get a stranglehold are you surprised that the war on drugs gets worse? Uh, I'm not sure about surprised but this is this isn't Okay, so don't get me wrong. What's happening in the Philippines is horrific, and there is, is nothing comparable to that in the world right now in terms of, in terms of the war on drugs, as, as far as I know, in terms of a, a government doing this against their own people. But this is, in a way, a natural continuation of the international war on drugs because the idea of, of the war on drugs is we're criminalizing everything to do with the drugs. Even though the... the, the, the International law doesn't require that necessarily, but that's essentially how it has manifested in that if you use drugs, you're a criminal. And so Duterte, he, he had this quote, which I actually made a note of uh, back when he was mayor. He said that the summary execution of criminals remains the most effective way to crush illegal drugs. And, well, in, in a way, he's, he's right. Um, because, I mean, that, that, is, that should not be what we're doing. We should not be trying to totally eradicate anybody who's involved with the drugs. But the idea of the war on drugs means repression. So here in the UK, this manifests in a different way, which is still very repressive, which still causes huge amounts of harms to people to war on drugs. The Philippines have just taken it to another level, to a far more horrific level, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to compare the UK and the Philippines, but this, this makes sense within the global ideology of a war on drugs, what's happening there. So in that way, I'm not necessarily surprised that, that something like this is happening.
but I'm still shocked and appalled, of course. Absolutely, I, I completely agree with that. That you, you, you've got, and I think Jonathan mentions in the book that you get a gallows humour within this sector, uh, and also what you mentioned in the book, uh, Jonathan, which. I was, as I was reading it last night, I had in my mind this phrase, and I thought, well, I'm going to be reticent to use that. But you, you then used it in the book, which was social cleansing. And it's almost the case that the drugs has become the other. Duterte has projected this menace onto society. And is that a way that he's using it as, as a population control? It, it is exactly that. I mean, you know, well, population control. Mm. No, I'm not sure about that. I, I, I think it's a political tool for him. In, in the way that sort of like other populists, authoritarians use um, fear of a minority or, 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 or some other social group. I mean, you, you, you've had it throughout history, from Genghis Khan through to Adolf Hitler. You know, there, there, there's, always been a, there's always been a scapegoat. And for Duterte, it's it, it's the it's the drug addicts. But you know, it, it's interesting to hear what what you guys are saying as well, because um, what, one of the things that impressed me in the book was how when oh, not in the book, but when I was researching the book, um, when when I when I was writing it, I, I I discovered that the head the chief of police of the Philippines, who had also been the chief of police in Davao when the death squads were going on, funnily enough, um, his, his name was um, Bato, that's his nickname, it, was, it means stone in, in Tagalog, and, and um, Ronald De La Rosa, Bato, decided to go off to Colombia to learn about Search Block. Now Search Block was, was what was set up to track down the Medellin cartel and um, Pablo Escobar. And um, he went. He went off, and he decided that what 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 had happened with search plot was brilliant, and he'd do it with knobs on in the Philippines. Um, and um, the guy who'd, who'd who'd overseen search block as president of Colombia in the late eighties, early nineties, Cesar Gaviria, yeah, he is now the head of the Global Com Drugs Commission. Okay, okay, what is it again? The International Commission on Drugs for the UN. It, the International Commission on Drugs, okay. So, so Gaviria wrote this brilliant opinion piece in the New York Times and said, please, President Duterte, don't repeat the mistakes I made. A war on drugs is a war on people. Please don't do this. He was, he was lucky, actually, Gaviria, because normally people who criticize Duterte get the son of a whore treatment. He was just called an idiot. By Duterte, but that pretty much sums it up. You know, Duterte will 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 not listen to the people who have experience. Like Gaviria declared war on drugs, and he says it didn't work. It did not work. I'm not sure that Duterte really, really believes in the war of drugs. It almost doesn't matter. He just uses it as a cipher for staying in power, for 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 creating this republic of fear. Would you agree with that, Livy? Because again, someone that's been on the ground, having seen it and dealt yeah. with actual families. Uh, no, I, I definitely, definitely agree that the the drugs thing is, is it's not about drugs. Um, having been there, I think is poverty is the biggest problem, corruption and poverty. Um, but he sold them the drugs line. But actually, all you have to do is look at the statistics, and I think the global average of use is like four four uh, percent. In the Philippines, it's like 2%. That's low. That's below the global average. Now, 
if you're living in the crappiest poverty going, you want to blame something. So if someone says, oh, it's because of drugs, everything will change. If we get rid of drugs, your situation will change. And people really, really believe that. And I met people who voted Duterte, knew family who had been killed by Duterte. Um, I met one family, their son was killed by, um, killed by his regime. And it, but still they support him because they really believe that this man is going to be their saviour for a better Philippines. And I think they've been sold a complete lie. And it's something that you both drew attention to, Livy, yeah. as well, uh, with Jonathan, that people that do use meth tends to use it because they need to have longer hours working, yeah. peddling. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that that is the case, that a lot of people involved both in in selling because you also met someone that was dealing yeah. and she was very much a case of dealing to put food on her table. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was saying to Jonathan before the, every time, cause I, I film with drug dealers a lot, um, around, around the world, but to almost verify who they are, it's, oh, you need to kind of see their stash and okay, what we're we dealing with, show me you've got drugs. <laughs> like, uh, and this girl, she had a baby there as well, um, which we, we didn't film. And she got out the most pathetic, tiniest amount of what would have her killed, basically. It was smaller than a Tic Tac, and it was Shabu, this, this crystal meth. But also the, the thing I've had experience of with crystal meth and users and dealers of that is it's a particularly nasty drug. Um, it, you, get, you do get around the world a lot of rapes and things kind of driven by crystal meth. But it's such a horrid drug, and of course even though, yes, it is present there, and you do see the sort of uh, faces of meth, if you like, but the usage isn't as horrific as he's making out, and he, um, he he's terrified his own people, I think, into believing that drugs are ravaging and there's everything wrong with that community is drugs. But even the police I spoke to, some of them, we went on um, a few of their raids, and they they're terrified of the the weapons these drug dealers are supposedly have but you're you're raiding the slums <laughs> like these people haven't got a roof over their head let alone an automatic weapon but people believe what they're told and you know they have no reason not to believe their leaders does that ring true of your work in release avenish is that a lot of times we are focused within drug policies and drug wars within the impoverished people and that are, Jonathan makes the point in the book that a lot of times we're not getting to the head of the chains of the of the of, of uh, drug dealing. We're actually just focused on on small time people that are dealing to make ends meet or using to recreationally or problematically because of childhood trauma. Does it, does this is all makes sense. It's got a continuity to what we see in this country as well. Uh, yeah. So it's um it's it's always the the especially in the Philippines now like the the small time dealers or users who are the ones being targeted. Um, I, uh, I know there was a Supreme Court justice recently, I think perhaps you may be uh, talking about the, um, there's some Supreme Court justice recently who actually called out Duterte on the fact that um, this war on drugs is just targeting small-time peddlers and it's letting the big fish go, essentially. Um, and there was a response to that by the, um, the top legal guy in the country, the Solicitor General in the Philippines, who said that, we need to be targeting the low-level people because well, we need to target the high-up high guys too, but that's difficult. But we need to target the low-level people because, and to use his terminology, because addicts, they're, they're, they're dangerous. They don't fear the police. They don't fear being killed. They rape children. They do all these horrific things. Um, 
and uh, as Levy was saying, like this this creation of this this huge stigma around drug use, which we really need to get rid of, and that's not just a Philippines thing; like that is everywhere, including here. Um, this creating this stigma around people who use drugs, whether it's meth, whether it's something else, is something that is both is, is, is sort of driving this this violence against the low level people, and it's being used by the government to justify what they're doing in the Philippines, but it's also, I imagine, being used by Duterte supporters who are not super wealthy, people who are in the slums, be like, yeah, well, I support Duterte because the drug addicts, in, in quotation marks, are, um, are, th- are threatening me and they're, and they're violent. But we need to, we really need to work on, on removing this stigma, especially around the, the level of, among people who use drugs, um, to... To, to just kind of overcome this barrier that leaves people supporting these kind of policies. Are we going to reach a point where drug policy is going to be even more polarised with, with examples like we've seen in the Philippines, we've seen it also in Bangladesh, we've had it previously in Thailand and also in Myanmar that's going on with, with, with essentially people that have been pulled out, pulled out of their houses and executed or tortured. Is it, is it a, at the point now where we're getting reform on one side of the spectrum and complete horrificness on the other side. Oh man, yeah, the the world is pulling in different directions right now in terms of the change changes in drug policy, or at least in changes in the implementation of drug policy. Because as far as I know, say, you mentioned Bangladesh. Like I don't know if any actual legislative change has happened there in in the past couple of months, but we've seen a massive change in the way the the police are behaving in the drug war um, with. We don't really know exactly how many, but around 130 people killed there in the last month. Extrajudicial extra killings. Um, thousands of people arrested. Um, I mean, this is, this is echoing what's been going on in the Philippines. It's still early days. Hopefully it's not going to get to that point, but it seems like it could be going that way. Whereas at the same time, we have other countries going down a very progressive reform, uh, reformist direction, like especially Canada right now. Uh, I mean, this very different subjects I suppose but on, on one hand they have the legalization of cannabis to be coming in this summer and at the same time they're opening drug consumption rooms all around the country to reduce the harms that drugs may have um, like reduce the risks I, I, mean, I don't need to go further into that for now but essentially it's just that we're seeing real polar opposites taking place around the world and I would really like to see um, yeah it, it, would be, it would be fantastic to see some more, more push for even bringing people towards more the center in, in places like Bangladesh and the Philippines right now, but right now it's, yeah, it's very polarised. Can I, can I just follow up on what Avanash said, though? There, there, there's something really alarming. <laughs> I, on, on a panel, we shouldn't all be agreeing with each other. I mean, it's much more interesting if we don't, but actually, I think we're, we've, all, we've all experienced from different perspectives what, what's going on in, this, on, in, 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 in drugs wars. What I think a lot of people were worried about was that when Duterte started this, it would catch on. And it really has. The first one to do it was Joko Widodo, who is the president of Indonesia. And he said, um, I mean, it must have been about a year ago now. He said, we've got a big drug problem. Let's kill them, shoot them. And I thought, oh, my God, it's really really sort of infectious, this this Duterte speak. Now, fortunately, just yet, it hasn't really spread massively in the Philippines. But that the president himself said that was an alarming development. What you just pointed up about Bangladesh, I spent a lot of time in Bangladesh as a journalist recently because of the Rohingya crisis. And I've got great journalistic contacts in Bangladesh, and they all started just bombarding me about 10 days ago when these killings started. And there were 50 in one night. 
And it was, it was, it was exactly the same, a replication of what Duterte has done. And, and you know, you're, you're also right, Avanash, in, in when, when you talk about the numbers, or I can't remember which of you said, said this, but, you know, when you, when you look at comparable um, levels of drug addiction or drug use in other countries, um, there are, per capita, far more crystal meth addicts in Australia than there are in the Philippines, and there are three times as many guns per capita in Australia than in the Philippines. The Philippines had far fewer weapons than Thailand, a country two-thirds of its size. And even the military junta that runs Thailand today and has done for the past four years declared last year that the drugs war initiated by Thaksin Shinawat in 2000 and whenever it was, 2001 or something, that, that you know, and, it, and, and that went on under the cover of the Iraq war. The whole world was watching something else going on and nobody noticed Taksim killing all these drug addicts. But the, the military government in Thailand said it didn't work. And believe it or not, this right-wing, nasty military dictatorship of Thailand said, let's legalize crystal meth. And it was really progressive. It was extraordinary. I just, my jaw dropped. So there is a real dichotomy in the way, you know, the massive difference in the, in the thinking on this. The trouble is that the violent way of thinking is catching on, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, um, it, I think there's a lot of, trying to find a better phrase than fake news, but uh, what, what, as is happening in the Philippines, like in, in Bangladesh right now, I mean, I've seen, I can't remember whether it, was the, whether it was the prime minister or some other official recently saying that there's 7 million people in Bangladesh who use um, Yaba, use use crystal meth I'm pretty sure they just made this figure up like there is I see no evidence that, that I've seen that there's this rate of, of, of crystal meth use in, in Bangladesh but they can use this figure to scare people and to justify the, the, what, what they're doing um, and then again we had a um, just, just a few days ago now I think the, the home, home minister said um, that all these people they're getting ki- who are being killed there right now in Bangladesh are, are, are quote unquote bad people all, all of these are not good people and it just, you know, it reminds me of, of Trump talking about bad hombres coming across the border. And exa- the same kind of terminology you hear from Duterte talking about the people who they killed there. And then later it'll turn out, oh, actually, it turns out some of these people killed shouldn't have been killed. I mean, really none of them should have been killed, but some of them were nothing to do with drugs at all. Maybe they were killed for political reasons or for, for some other affiliation or just for no reason at all because of some personal vendetta. But it's this kind of hijacking of the national dialogue and, and turning it into this kind of horrifically just uh, dehumanizing thing has just like allows them to get away with it and then to pull up these figures like 7 million. doesn't matter if it's true or not now because people will believe it there and then they can use that to justify what they're doing. And that's a really good point is that a lot of times the drug issue has been put on so many different people, journalists, politicians. And this is what you've highlighted in the book as well, Jonathan, is that if Duterte's got an enemy, he'll just push a drug subject onto them and go, right, get out there and deal with it. And is, is this just the tool that he's using now, just the kind of oust people that are potentially against him? Okay, so Lila de Lima is Duterte, Duterte's chief critic. She ran the Human Rights Commission, and she investigated Duterte and what he was up to with his death squads in Davao about a decade ago. She then became the justice minister and remained a critic of what was going on in Davao. When Duterte was elected, she was elected senator at the same, roughly the same time. 
and he turned on her, said that she was the queen of the drugs lords, and banged her up inside Camp Crame police headquarters in Manila, where she remains to this day as an Amnesty International prisoner of conscience. And every single day, she puts out a communique, which I get every single one of them, all handwritten, photographed, and then transcribed. And, and, and you know, she, 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 she just will not be silenced. She refuses to, 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 to be silenced by Duterte and what he's done. However, that's at the very top of the tree, the political tree. Further down the tree, what you get is, um, what's the best way of putting it? Um, it's, it's a very handy way to get rid of people you don't want around. And if you add a name to a list and place a measure of suspicion over them, whether you've got a business dispute, a property jealousy, a girlfriend issue, whatever it might be, this person may not be involved in drugs at all. And in fact, there's a guy in this book who I interview who claims, and I actually do believe him, that although he had in the past been involved in drugs, he wasn't now, and that he was on a high-value target list, like target number one for, for vigilantes, because of a property dispute, that if a jealous neighbor puts your name on a list, you'll be killed. And, and it's not, it's, the, the, the trouble is it's not just those sorts of killings. It's not just sort of like the getting rid of people you don't like and, and, and it's, a, it's a convenient way to do it. It's also like people getting caught in the crossfire, mistaken identities, kids, kids. And, and Duterte calls children who have been killed in this drugs war collateral because it's a war. To him it's a war and collateral is a term associated with war. And, and there have been between 30 and 40 kids, children, little children, killed in this war, and it's documented in here. Um, and, and, you know, he's turned it into this, into this nightmare dystopian world in which people can be killed for all sorts of reasons, but it's all sort of like under the ambit, um, under the aegis of this greater drugs war, which he's declared. And it is, it reads out like a, a film, doesn't it? Like a, an Arnold Schwarzenegger film from the 80s of just how dystopian it has become in, in the ethics and morals of, of the drug war in the sense that, as Jonathan said, and you make it clear in the film as well, Livy, that if you've got an enemy on the street, then you can just put someone's name in a box and they're all of a sudden on the target list. And, and they, it has been used as, as kind of revenge killings, hasn't it, in, under a sort of a guise. Literally every time we followed a body back to the funeral parlour and then sure enough the next morning or if not that night the family would come in and within minutes you'd find out the real reason that they'd been killed. Oh, um, she was dating someone new and the ex-boyfriend didn't like it. Or um, there was one the a, a stepdad didn't like his girlfriend, his daughter's new partner. Um, and And if it weren't that, then if it were the police that came and did it, which was a huge one as well. And they always say they fight back, they fight back. But you only, e even in the film, you can see three bodies. Um, oh, these, this was a by bus gone wrong. They tried to shoot us, is what they said, the police said. But you look at, you just look at the bodies. I'm no forensic specialist, <laughs> but they're all facing down. They've got their hands tied and they've got a gunshot in the back. Is like, explain that to me. They didn't fight back. How? It'd be a miracle. <laughs> Is it, is it just the intimidation factor that the police, and also the police, 
how how involved are they in both the drug trade and also just in the the dodgy dealings that's going on within this in terms of the drug trade itself um i don't know um but we did set out to prove in the film i did that the um, majority of the killings i mean they've claimed now 4000 operations and 4000 people have been killed in their police operations since this all began but i mean i personally believe it's far bigger than that i believe that um they're pretty much involved in almost all of them um we met with a vigilante and he he said yeah i said look do the police know what you're doing he said yeah yeah, yeah. no they come because you ring the police after you've done the job and they say oh good job good job and a lot of the time it's the police that are giving them the names of people off the watch list so if it's not someone that has been rumored within the community already then um, the police will give them tip-offs, oh, this one, th- that one. But also now, um, well, when, when I was there, they were doing Tok Hang, which is where you literally knock and surrender. So the police or local volunteers go round the neighbourhood, round the barangay, um, and knock on people's door and invite them to surrender or do a drugs, tra- drugs test. Now, a lot of that information, the intelligence there, has come from either rumours or um, people just, like you say, not liking their neighbours any reason at all and then you've got these kind of volunteers who are almost like your local kind of gossip listeners who then tip off the police and then they carry out a top hung on that address um if you attest positive for drugs then you're taken straight to the police um a lot of the time you're either then added to straight on the watch list and then you're going to end up on that kill list it, i mean you just look at the kill list from the local papers who are publishing days names of people that have been killed in the, the last few days and then you've got you look at those lines and th- they all correspond to the watch list so they're known to the police and these lists are extensive aren't they you cover it in the book Jonathan that once you're on the list you pretty much are not getting off it and, and it's again he waves them about like a flag at press conferences doesn't he he does and what Livy just described is exactly what I have seen myself and, and what I learned um, there are Different types of lists, though. Um, there's the watch lists, which are just sort of like suspects, and um, quite often they're the ones who, like, you know, you, you, they, they, they're, they're, they're asked to go down to the cop shop and sign a surrender document saying, yeah, I'm, I, I've, I've done a bit of shabu, and the next thing is they're dead. So you, you're signing your death warrant. Um, the next level up is the high-value target list, which are people who generally they're dealers rather than addicts are alleged dealers and they all get knocked off um and then um above that you've got this extraordinary list which duterte sort of waving around in news conferences about the time you were there i was there at the same time in november 2016 um and he'd been in power what about six months um and um he started he started off with 158 names and they were judges, police officers, government officials who he said were corrupt and involved in the narco politics trade. And um, very quickly this grew. And, and the chief justice, who's just been fired, um, she, she took him to task and said, you can't, you can't just say this. You can. And he says, yes, I can. You try telling me not to. If, if you want to tell me not to, I'll declare martial law. That was his response. So she shut up. Well, she didn't actually. She kept, she kept on going for a while, but that's why she lost her job. Um, so, so, so Duterte's list got bigger and bigger and bigger, and more and more people got onto it, and it became thicker and thicker, and he was still waving it around. There were all these pictures of, of people, people's faces on it. 
He even accused people who were senators, who he then said, oh, I'm really sorry I got the wrong bloke. Um, and, but, you know, for, 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 for low-down sort of drug dealers and, and, and alleged addicts, if your picture's there and your name's there, you might as well have a target painted on your back, dead. And, and this list grew and grew and grew. And, and in fact, at one point, the New York Times suggested that there might be 600,000 people on this list, which isn't exactly surprising, given the fact that he says that there are between four and five million addicts of Shabu in the country. So, so these lists have become everything. The, 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 and you can't get your name off them. There's a, there's a bit I write about, about talking to lawyers who've been trying to represent their clients, who found their names on lists, and they said, hang on, I'm, I'm, I've never touched drugs. Tough shit. <laughs> Tough, you can't get your name off it. Once you're on it, you go to the local cops, and you, they say, oh, I'm really sorry, it's gone to Manila now. You try to get to the Manila, and you go to a judge in Manila, and the judge says, well, how can you prove that you're not a drug addict? Well, I can't. And so the, the, these lists have become... The way in it, it's like it's it's one of the Philippines' most famous and most most um, uh, you know best known lawyers uh, who's got a long family record going right the way back to the Marcos dictatorship years. He he said it's just like it's like the way the Gestapo worked. It's like it's like the way the Kempatai worked, the Japanese secret police during the war. He said you know it's it's turned into this sort of society in which everyone just lives in fear. And and you was it the drop boxes you talked to the drop boxes yeah yeah you know you put people's yeah. names into boxes and they're screwed they're dead and the only way you can sort of protect yourself is to stitch someone else up so it's like don't look at me look at them um, I mean there, there was a lot of that going on and it's the only place I've ever been where people are literally fighting to go to prison because that's the only place you're not going to get killed in theory. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. 
And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And the prisons are, are pretty overcrowded as well, aren't they? I, I think both of you have made examples of in the relative works that... The, the po- prison population is just huge yeah. now and it's inhumane treatment and but also there's there's bizarre things like zumba camp she was at a zumba camp weren't you? <laughs> can you can you explain that so um if you're on the watch list you're given certain things that you have to kind of sign up to if not you're going to get arrested again and um, have police attention so one of these to my astonishment we went along to see where all these uh, supposed addicts had to go to and it was a zumba class and it was the most surreal thing in the world because you've got all these people um, doing Zumba on a Sunday morning with the music playing loud. And then you've got policemen walking around just photographing everybody um, to make sure they've attended. And it's messed up because you think, like, this is a really light-hearted, fun activity. But who's not turned up today? And it, you just can, can't bear the thought of what would happen if you don't turn up. And I met one lady there, though, um, who w- had been an addict for like 16 years. And it was only because of Duterte. And she loves Duterte. She says, the only reason I got clean was because of Duterte and his influence on the country. And I mean, I, I felt uncomfortable her saying what a great thing he is and everything. But no doubt she got clean. So y- you can't argue with that. It's, it's, we haven't quite obviously got the extrajudicial killings here, Avanesh, but the erosion between trust within the police and drug consumers is something that we do have to deal with in this country, isn't it? And it's something that you deal with brilliantly within the release. Um, it's it's going to be a really kind of cheap segue plug, but can you tell us about the app that you've just released, which um, is, I think, just mind-blowing? Uh, yeah, so at really, I work for Release. I'm uh, Pulsing Communications Officer there, which is a legal charity based in London, and we provide legal advice and support to people both in drug treatment centres and through a helpline service. Um, as mentioned at the beginning, I work for Talking Drugs um, on the Talking Drugs campaign. I do communication stuff, so I don't work directly with clients or provide legal advice. Um, but we have recently launched an app called Legal Aid, which you can download for free. It is essentially a step-by-step guide to help people who are arrested or prosecuted for a drug possession offence in England and Wales. Um, basically, because due, due to cuts to government cuts to legal aid, a lot of people charged for simple possession of drugs, so not intent to supply, uh, do not get um, will not have legal representation when they go to court. You know, they have to represent themselves, which you know, is, is pr- pretty mad if you think about it, as in someone will not get any real legal support when, when they're in court, when they're speaking to the judge, to try to get mitigation to you know, reduce their potential sentence or fine. So we've produced this app. When I say we, I mean my colleagues. I wasn't really involved with it, but like the legal experts, um, to allow people who are in this situation to uh, go through a step-by-step guide within the app to yeah, reduce the potential legal harms of drug possession conviction. And this is what you've always been great at at release, is just how you put a focus on the fact that all the while you have punitive drug policies, as we've seen here on the exact extreme example of it, but also ironic with the sirens going by, but um, hopefully not for a drug possession. But also what we see in this country, it's, it's obviously not the extreme, but it's still within the same kind of 
track of we've still got a punitive system and people are still being punished for this in this country. The erosion between what's supposedly supposed to be protectors, the police, versus someone that most times are vulnerable, people that have had childhood traumas that have suffered addictions and also just in general people that consume drugs and don't do it problematically. How can we do something about that? Are we, are we having a global conversation or national conversation of how we need to have more of a cohesion between those two sectors? Well, we need to, we need to decriminalize the possession of drugs. That is, just, that is something that is just absolutely vital. We, we can't move forward without that. Like, there's a lot of other changes that need to happen, but to criminalize people for the possession of drugs, for the simple possession of drugs, it, there's, no, there's no logic behind it. There's no benefit for the person. There's no benefit for society. Everybody loses out. It costs everybody a lot of money um, and costs people their lives in many instances because of the stigma that comes out of the criminalization of drug, drug possession and drug use. Um, Oh, sorry, can you uh, repeat your question? I think you, you've answered it, because again, stigma is, is the big issue in this, isn't it? All the while we have criminalization, stigma is the thing that's in yeah. place. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's, there's people who, who do have issues with their drug use, who want to have help, they want, they want treatment, they want help, they want, to, they want support, but sometimes they're going to be scared for, for asking for it, or they don't know who to turn to because they're scared they're going to get arrested, or they're scared they're going to get kicked out of their building, their accommodation, or their university, or wherever they happen to be. Um, because of the criminalized aspect of it, um, by removing that criminalization, it's a further incentive for people to people who want help to seek the help. Um, then there's also, of course, the discriminatory nature of the policing of drug possession and drug use. Um, people who have the money and have the luxury to use drugs at home are probably not going to get caught for using the drugs. It's the people who, very likely, if they're homeless and they're using drugs in the street, they're far more likely to get caught for using the drugs. Um, young people as well who are not at home again we can go down the whole issue about race, racist drug policing but there, there's very clear ways in which different people are targeted and more likely to be criminalized and convicted and have their you know their futures taken away from them because of this and so we can at least try to level out this playing field a little bit by ending the criminalization of of drug possession i think that if we can have a round of applause for Evan national i think So we're going to start to wrap up now so that we can actually get um, Jonathan to sign some of the books. He's already signed mine. Thank you very much for that. Um, so we're going to have a quick wrap-up from each one of the panellists. Uh, I'll start with you again, Avinash. Do you think that we're going to have more of a conversation about the harsher drug policies that we're seeing around the world in this country? And is it going to have any impact on how we're dealing with it in this country? Or do you think we're just stuck in a bit of a quagmire? What, in terms of us progressing in the UK's drug policy? And internationally in general, do you think there is progress? I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot of progress happening. I mean, I mentioned Canada, but like even, even in, in countries which have been traditionally repressive, like in Iran, um, I'm not saying they have a progressive drug policy, but they have all but entirely ended the death penalty for drug offences. Um, it still exists, it's still in the books, and they have executed one person in the last five months for for drug offences, but in the previous period last year, they executed over 100 people. So they, they, they changed their legislation to try to reduce um, death penalty for, for drug offences. So that's just one example of, of countries in which have traditionally been very repressive are moving forward. Again, there's many places in Europe, there's Canada, there's Australia, which are introducing more progressive policies. The UK, we haven't really, we're not really going anywhere right now. Um, obviously, there's a very big push for medical cannabis at the moment, uh, which is, you know, not exactly the same issues as, as what's going on in the Philippines, but it's, it's something which 
you know, fingers crossed, there's a lot of people working very hard on this issue, but whether this government's going to budge is hard to say. So got to have hope, but we need, we need people joining the, joining the fight to, to make change, basically. And Livy, I think that what my first question is going to be, what was it like after making the film? Did it, did it rest with you? Because I can imagine, I, just having watched it, it rested with me, and I thought about it pretty much now. You know, it's incessantly in my mind, just what you saw. But also the responsibility of journalists like yourselves. What, what is the responsibility you've got to tell the stories that are going on internationally? Uh, it, it, it was an interesting uh, sort of li- leaving there felt of relief that, yeah, we can go home. Um, I stay in touch with the journalists I work with who are still doing the night crawler sessions. Um, this, the worst sort of emails I got um, weeks after leaving were from the human rights activists we filmed with saying, look, we need help, we need help. They're, they're hacking our phones, they're trying to stop us. And sure enough, while we were still there, uh, Duterte added lots of human rights activists to the watch list as, you know, you're helping drug dealers, basically. Um, and then the journalists started being added too. Um, and that recently has got even worse. So it's one of those things that you you want to go back and, and cover it more because you want more people to see and more people to understand it and to listen. But my worry with my film in particular is that it hasn't reached enough people. It just hasn't. I don't think people think a problem in the Philippines is going to affect them in any way. And actually, if you look at his relationships with a lot of politicians, Liam Fox, <laughs> like, and uh, arms deals going on, I think we're, we're a lot more responsible than what people realise. That's interesting. Yeah, that's, that is well said, because that's kind of been my overriding point of the night that I don't think I made as anywhere near as well as what you've made, Liffy, is that the collective responsibility that we face over what's happening internationally is, is just huge. And Jonathan, to wrap up, how long are you in the country for? And also... Are you afraid to go back now that you've written this book? Because he, he's going to get to hear about it, surely. So is there any, is there any imminent danger for you? Well, we've sent him a couple of copies. Really? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, sent, we sent one to Malakanyang Palace. Um, haven't heard anything back. They don't like me. They really don't like me very much in Malakanyang Palace, the, the press boys and girls. And um, we, we sent uh, one to uh, an embassy, the Philippine embassy in Canberra in Australia, hoping it would make its way up there as well. Um, now, look, this guy, he's as much of a narcissist, a malignant narcissist, as Donald J. Trump. I like to think that something inside Duterte will like this book. He'll probably revel in being in the title Duterte Harry. He is the, the swaggering Clint Eastwood, dirty Harry, vigilante cop in his head. He is, as Livy said, in his head, the savior of the Philippines, who's come along like a, a knight in shiny armor, the sort of the man in the white hat, right at the last moment to save his country from all the terrible things that are going on. I Look, as to me going back, um, I'm not, I'm not going to say publicly, um, but, I, you know, to me it's really important that we're not intimidated. To me it's really important that we do keep this story in the news agenda, on the news agenda. I, I, I feel that this book is about a man who is, yes, he's, he's the latest psychopathic killer president on the block, 
He's, he's the sort of Idi Amin of, the, of this millennium or this century so far. Um, I, I think that unless we, we, we continue to report the crimes that he's committing, unless we continue to anchor as many, many Filipinos do. I mean, you asked me at the very beginning how many people, you know, I don't, I don't think I answered the question, but about the, the split in terms of support and those who like him, those who don't. A lot of people voted for him, but don't forget, there's a lot of people who don't like Duterte and, and, and have been appalled at his boorishness and his violence, and they want him out as fast as possible. There's a lot of decent right-thinking people in the Philippines who realize that what he's done to their democracy is, is, is really dangerous and to lament what will happen in the future when he's gone because it'll take years to recover from this guy. And somebody asked me the other day and when I was speaking, what are we going to do about this? And I said, look, I'm a, I'm a journalist. It's not up to me to figure out what to do about it. But I can tell you what is happening is that Duterte is now under investigation, preliminary investigation by the International Criminal Court. There are lots of people who have varying opinions about the effectiveness of the ICC and its reach and its ability to bring justice because the wheels of justice turn slowly and this is an old guy and he's probably cocksure that you know he'll get through the age of 80 something without being hauled up in front of him in the dock in the Hague but it's happening there are lawyers in the Philippines taking risks to make sure that the evidence that is piling up against him for the brazen incitements to kill is someday going to bring him to justice. And I think just as, as a reporter, I, I want to make sure that, that we keep making sure that Duterte is, and what he's doing is known. Because it's not just about a little country, well, it's a big country actually, it's not just about a big country far away that doesn't actually affect us in Britain. It's about a principle of populist authoritarianism. And this guy is the encapsulation of what can happen when unbridled populism takes root. He's Donald Trump gone mad. That's a perfect closer. Give a round of applause for our panel. Thank you so much for listening to that discussion. And yeah, I think we need those discussions, don't we? This is what happens when the drug war goes unchecked. It creates what's fundamentally a social cleansing. So thank you so much to Livy Haydock, filmmaker. Thank you to Jonathan Miller, Channel 4 News. And thank you, Avanish Floor from releasing Talking Drugs. And now your pasture's new, so best of luck, Avanish. Thank you so much to the panel on that. I think that other than getting people from the Philippines over to talk about their own circumstances, it's the best we can do to have the people that have been out there covering these subjects and seeing what's going on and living these things as well, because especially in regards to Jonathan and, and Livy, they've been out there so much that they can speak about this fluently, so thank you so much. Right, and one one thank yous. Thank you so much to Tristan and Nikki, the producers of this show. You wouldn't be, well, you wouldn't be listening to me rambling about those two, so thank you. Well, well I don't know if you should thank them or not for that, but thank you so much. To my name is Ad for all the artwork you do. Make sure you you go and check him out for any of your artwork needs. Um, thank you to Scubus Pip for having us on your Distraction Pieces Network. And of course, go listen to all the Distraction Pieces Network. If you don't, you, then you won't you won't win a gold sticker. Um, thank you so much to uh, John, 
at the Dream Factory for doing all the little social network things that you do for us. Well, I say little, that's patronising, isn't it? You do so much for us. And thank you so much to John at UK Deep for all what you do, because, again, goodness knows we've been lost without you. And, of course, I've already done them, but make sure you check us out on social media, at UK Leap on Facebook. Uh, no, at UKLeap.org on Facebook, at UK Leap on Twitter, at UK Leap on Instagram, and our website, UKLeap.org. And I think that's it. There's bound to be someone I forgot I always do, but, well, tweet me. Tweet me and give me a heads up. On that note, we'll see you again soon. Next episode's already been queued up. There's loads more to come. we got some pretty astounding guests coming up as well so spoiler alerts I'll see you again soon bye behind your barricades yeah but how long can I stay behind your barricades where true values seldom stray A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 